the choreography of that is very similar in this setup to what's happening right here where he's trying to save the person and Lark Carlung's sort of taking on the army. So it's a, I love Drunken Master 2 is a nice callback to this sequence. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the Drunken Master 2 sequence is better, but this one's, <laughs> this one's grittier. Um, Does but Lark Carlung did the choreography for both of them. In Drunken Master 2, rip a rock off the wall with his bare hands because he does it here. Yeah, but Jackie like took that bamboo thing and and Uh, just took out like a hundred guys with paper cuts or bamboo cuts. But he rips a rock off the wall (laughs) with his bare hands, Troy. There is a very real looking rock ripped off of a very real looking wall of rock. It's so real. I agree. Yes. Hello and welcome to Movie Struck, a podcast about movies and the people who watch them. I'm your host, Sophia Ricciardi, and I am joined today by Brad and Troy of the Not A Bomb podcast. Guys, welcome to the show. Thank you. Yeah, so, thank you for having uh, us. We're excited for being here. So, I'm so excited to have you guys on. I love having fellow movie podcasters on the show. Uh, but I do have to ask you the question that I ask everyone at the top of the episode. Why did we watch the Eight Diagram Pole Fighter? Uh, Brad, you want to take this one? Sure. I will take this one. So Troy and I have been friends for, oh boy, like 15 years Long now. time, yes. Yeah. And we met at a horror convention. And when we when we met, initially it was like, oh, you like horror films? I like horror films. Obviously, we're at a horror convention, so yes. And then we started to bond over Shaw Brother films, Jackie mm-hmm. Chan films. And we became really good friends over watching other people kick people in the face Um, and that is why we chose this film i think we chose this one in particular because it just got a nice release um from arrow Mm -hmm. and it is it is really nice so and it had been a little while since i had seen it troy when was the last time you saw this um this is on a yearly watch for me oh okay (laughs) so i i love this film but we we had what i don't know it started almost like 15 movies when when you when we found out that you were a fan of martial arts cinema, specifically Hong Kong films, we d- we composed like this big list, and it took us a <laughs> long time to get it down to four. And then there was a um, there was an evening we just debated, and if we were probably in the same room, we would have been kicking each other in the face, and and we finally decided <laughs> on this one. It just sounds like an excuse to have you guys back on, so we get to talk about more Hong Kong martial Any, arts cinema. Oh yes, anytime, anytime. <laughs> yeah, amazing. Uh, I had not seen this one before. I am pretty familiar with Hong Kong's cinema scene. Uh, in college, I was a Chinese and film double major, and ended up writing my oh, thesis my about uh, the Jiangshu monster in '80s and '90s Hong Kong horror cinema, which does not appear in this movie, but there is a little brief reference to it that I am so excited to get to do my one little. Oh my god, I wrote about this in college moment, um, but. Hadn't seen this one previously. It's been on my list for a while. I'm thrilled to get to talk about it. Uh, so why don't we just dive right in? Awesome. We open on peaceful music as women are discussing a coming battle and read a fortune which tells them that seven will go and six will return. Very ominous odds to hear ahead of a martial arts movie or any sort of battle you got coming up. They discuss this kind of sacrifice, worry which of their sons are going to die. The woman that we meet here is going to later be revealed to be the mother, Lady Yang, of uh, a clan of powerful spear warriors. 
So I've, I have a question. Mm-hmm. Um, going into this film, and even in the first few minutes, did you know about this family and sort of the folk- folklore around this family? I'm vaguely aware of it. I know that it's based on kind of a Song Dynasty era uh, legend, the legendary Yang clan, but I'm not super familiar with like in their individual myths. Yeah, I mean, I mean that's it. It's yeah. it's one of the biggest folklores, I would say, of of uh, Chinese history because mm-hmm. it is talking about the generals of the Yang family, and uh, it it's been you know told in Peking opera style and everything else. But I, I think it's very interesting because um, doing something from the Song Dynasty and really talking about these brothers because if if, if you want to go down a rabbit hole, just go to Wikipedia. <laughs> Go to the mm-hmm. Yang family, and and you will find out about all of these brothers and what their accomplishments were. But uh, I, it's it's very interesting because with with Shaw Brother Films, right out of the gate, you're always getting some type of Chinese history um, and folklore. And mm-hmm. this is kind of one of my favorites. This this story is fantastic. And if you if I, I would encourage everybody to just go and um, do a little history. History is not boring in this in this context. <laughs> there's, there's a lot yes. of bloody battles. Um, but the, the Yang family, it, they're, they're pretty famous um, when, when you're talking about that folklore. So uh, the, the first section of this really feels like you're watching a, a Chinese uh, Peking opera on mm-hmm. display, especially in the first battle. But, but you're going to get yeah. there. Yeah, that's what I, 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 what I like about this film and Shaw Brothers in general is you get that kind of opening scene. In this one, it's very, like Troy say, Peking opera. But it's like these guys in front of a clearly matte painting, oh, yeah. um, mm-hmm. charging at each other. It's very uh, like stage play, and I love that about like the Shaw Brothers Studio stuff. It it's epic, but also very stage play at the same time. Um, and I love that look. Yeah, my yeah. my favorite is when they start with like a red backdrop, and it's just a guy doing forms, and you get to watch the credits. Yeah, but yes. I'll take this one. This <laughs> one's pretty cool, especially how they introduce the brothers. Um, mm-hmm. It's really. I absolutely love it. And I like that they do a lot. There's a little bit of like setup here and it does feel very, like you were saying, theatrical and dramatic because we'll see uh, our scoundrel for the film, uh, Pan Mei, will rush in and tell uh, Lady Zhen Zhong, who I think is his daughter, that her brothers have died. They were killed in a tournament by Yang Ye's seventh son and they swear their revenge. And it's all very heightened performances everyone's oh it's melodramatic stiff it's upper very lip, yeah swooning incredible <laughs> stuff i <laughs> oh, love it love it mm-hmm. she and her father swear that they'll they'll bring death to the the yang clan and destroy them uh though their her father pan Mei, shows his conniving side and suggests the situation calls for some subtlety so we're going to see some scheming happening behind the scenes this isn't going to just be straight honorable combat right out the gate we hard cut to the aforementioned beginning of this incredible red backdrop battle where we're going to meet all of the young brothers we pan down the line of this group of spear wielding warriors uh, as we go past each of them, their name pops up and which brother in the birth order they are, one through seven, more, <laughs> more yeah. or less. But I love that shot. I think it's such a great way to run us through these guys. It's appropriately dramatic. You get to really like linger on them and feel the, the tension before the fighting breaks out. Fantastic. <laughs> and you get to see Gordon Liu with hair, which is yes. so unusual. <laughs> it is very, it's, it's And he shows shocking. up with, those, with just the, the wig. I mean, it's a wig, obviously. And he shows up with all the hair. You're like, I, I, I'm in instantly. I'm in because it's yeah. something different visually. <laughs> I mean, you have a Lao Kar Leung film. 
you got to assume Gordon Liu is going to pop up at some point. It is at least not he gets to have his moment with the wig first. Yeah, I, th- this is so this is kind of a big deal because you've got um, Lar Carlong. Mm-hmm. Who I, I'm I'm sure you've you've watched a ton of his films. Um, for those who don't know, he uh, on the credits he directed the greatest movie ever. Behind the scenes, he co-directed it, and that's Drunken Master Two. That is the greatest movie <laughs> ever of all time. Um, so his whole filmography is is so interesting. Mm-hmm. And um, if if you if you haven't seen Drunken Master Two, stop listening. Go go watch that. I think everybody has <laughs> who who is into martial arts. Um, yeah, but great. yeah, when you get Lark Carlong <laughs> behind the camera doing the choreography too, mm-hmm. and then Gordon Liu and Alexander Fu, which sadly this was, this is his last film mm-hmm. because he died during the production of this in the, in a car accident. I mean, automatically this movie, you know, is just turned up to an 11 based on the talent behind the, the camera and in front of the camera. Exactly. That's something I really love about Lau Carlong that kind of comes through in all of his directing is that he did get a start as a choreographer and so you know if you see him directing a martial arts movie it's going to have some of the best directed fights you're you're ever going to see um and this is no exception (laughs) this was so good it got nominated for best action choreography Mm -hmm. i want to say at the fourth annual or fifth annual hong kong film awards one of those two but it lost Mm -hmm. yeah do you know who it lost to i don't know who it lost to was it hmm Okay, it's it, it makes total sense. It was never going to win the year this movie came out, but it was Jackie Chan's Project A. Of course. Ah, yes. Okay. Yeah, so there, there was no chance. I mean, this is a close second, but Project A was was clearly the winner that year. Yeah, you got to give it to Jackie sometimes. <laughs> All the time. But, All okay. the time. <laughs> uh, but speaking of the fights going on, we've got our brothers squaring up against uh, the young... Uh, Mongol warriors. Yeah, it depends on if you watch the dub version or the subtitle version. <laughs> yeah. I did the dub this time. You did I, the dub? Usually, on... Yeah. Okay. The dub talks Mongols, but they're not mm-hmm. Mongols. No. It's the, I think it's the Katans, um, something of that nature. So I think they call them traitors a lot in the dub version as well. Yeah, they yeah. do go for traitor pretty often. Yeah. Yeah, but the, the, there's historical inaccuracies with the dub version, but if you watch the <laughs> subtitle version, they actually kind of got it right for the Song Dynasty and... Um, it's a little bit more accurate, but I don't, I don't know how you are, Sophia. Brad and I talk about this all the time. <laughs> I, I mean, you watch a foreign film. We love the subtitled version, right? Mm-hmm. There's something about these Shaw Brother films that I will typically watch them dubbed. Uh, they're, they're, they just have a different feeling to them. They're, they're more fun, yeah. if you can call it that. I think I'm the same way. I typically do try to go for a sub for an international movie because, you know, you get a lot of the original performances from the actors, but... Shell Brothers pretty often do go for the dub, partially because sometimes it's just easier to find, which is you know an unfortunate side effect of how popular the films are here. But partially yeah. it is that there's something very nostalgic about it. <laughs> yes, that's how I am. And, like I was introduced to a lot of this stuff through the Wu Tang Clan, which I don't know if you know this, but the Wu Tang Clan actually has an album called Eight Diagrams. But huh. um, and you look at Brad and you wouldn't you wouldn't say Wu Tang Clan. <laughs> yeah, <you>? exactly. <laughs> exactly. Southern Indiana farm boy. That's what I see. That's not farm boy, not. Uh, but anyway. Uh, <laughs> But a lot of their 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 samples they use are the dub versions of a lot of these films, and mm-hmm. um, so that was like the nostalgia factor. Is like, oh, when I started watching them, I had to use do the dub just because I think it's more fun. I just think it plays into the whole 
kind of over the melodramatic aspect of of these con- the, these films um for sure for me yeah yeah absolutely speaking of some melodramaticness we gotta <laughs> get jump into this fight it's beginning in earnest uh, again amazing there's no way i could verbally describe the choreography in any way that is cooler than just seeing it on screen so any of these fights are going to have fantastic choreography going on. I'll try to highlight if there was a particularly good move or something. But in general, listeners, this is your opportunity to go type into YouTube <laughs> eight diagrams opening fight and watch it because it's fantastic. Yeah, this this one has the the brutal death scenes for the brothers. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They start out seeming to handle their foes in earnest. Uh, amazing like shing sound effects on yeah the i was gonna say i love the weapons swords. <laughs> the swords and the spears when they you know they always make this huge swoosh sound when they're in the mm-hmm. air it's it is how it heightens everything yeah, yeah. it's almost the, like a video game like doing a, a character doing an attack uh and it, it just adds something to the soundtrack of an otherwise pretty quiet in the background scene uh, it really just is letting the fight happen and be the main focus there's some good music throughout but it's a little bit more subdued than some other no, that's a, that's a good point. I mean, the sound effects um, and the noises everybody's making during this is the music of the scene, right? Mm-hmm. So, and and this first part, I think what's an, what's unique is it feels like a Cheng Che film in terms of the violence. Yeah, uh, you, you get they don't they don't have horses, but and I think, man, I'm I'm really tapping my brain energy here. <laughs> I think one of the brothers was trampled, but to recreate that, they just have guys trampling over him. But it, it it's kind of gruesome. <laughs> Um, the other brother who's held up with all the spears, it kind of looks like just this Chinese crucifixion. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, it's incredibly gory right out of the gate, which again, you would mistake this for a Cheng Che film versus Larkar Long. But I, I think um, this, well, it, there is some goriness towards the end, but I think the, the heavier gore stuff is, is yeah. at the beginning here of the fight sequence. It's got a very brutal beginning and ending and in the middle yes. it sort of levels out into more of what you expect from La Carlone. The, the battle starts going south for them when their enemies lure them towards a tent that then explodes and immediately they several of them are very injured, one brother's blinded, and one by one they start to fall uh, through various different methods. As you said, one's trampled, one is uh, caught with... A, a lot of their enemies have these spears that have like a flexible almost bendy straw part oh yeah the, uh, the bendy straws. i don't yep. know if you guys know what that's called <laughs> i was like is that it's, <laughs> it's this thing that happens in kung fu movies which again make it the best genre ever <laughs> um you have these weapons that just don't exist but within <laughs> the kung fu world i mean like the flying guillotine come on yeah practicality wise <laughs> it makes no sense but it's really cool when they do it in the films and this is another one where this the staffs themselves can wrap around their weapons or the hands mm-hmm. and hold them and they can retract or curl and do all this other stuff. So again, from a practical standpoint, it, no, not, not at all. But yeah. in the context of this fight, that sort of sets the stakes right out of the gate where you're like, well, the bad guys have this really cool weapon that nobody can seem to beat. Yeah. They basically that, have the anti spear weapon in the movie about guys who use spears almost exclusively. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, and you know, okay, that's, that's going to be part of the plot. Mm-hmm. Got to figure out how to, you know, get around that particular weapon, which it's a staple of these Shaw Brother films. But yeah. I totally believe that this weapon works in real life. They sell it so well. <laughs> like, I don't know the <laughs> I, physics I, I, of it, yeah. but I'm like, okay, yeah, it totally works. Yeah. I'm sure someone could figure it out. Someone out there who is steeped in martial arts, creates their own weaponry, and has mythbustered their way into making a working <laughs> version of this. And if you're that person, please email us. Well, 
<laughs> that weapon shows up on those YouTube videos that are called Bullshito. <laughs> so, um, but yeah, it's it makes for an interesting element of, of the fighting choreography. Yeah. Uh, another brother in this scene is captured alive and a woman who we don't see commands him to be taken away alive. Uh, I, I really thought he was going to come back later. I assume that that might be based in some of the like young brothers lore. Um, yeah. Another one having survived, but he's considered dead and out of the movie for the sake of the plot going forward. Uh, eventually, their father, Yang Ye, is cornered and attempts to charge Panmei and his men. It looks as if he's about to be shot by the archers surrounding him when one of his sons, one of the last ones remaining alive, jumps in front of his father and takes all the arrows instead. And he's left just like standing up full of arrows, completely dead. It's a very haunting image. Uh, this buys his father just a second before the archers <laughs> like, fire. Yeah, like two seconds. Yes, <laughs> like two seconds, two seconds, almost immediately. Yeah. Uh, but he gets to go out on his own terms because though he's hit with some of the arrows, he does one of those fantastic wirework high leaps that these movies are great for. Uh, and he slams his head into the tomb that he's standing next to, this giant stone monument, uh, and stands next to it and also dies standing up in this frozen pose. That that whole sequence looks amazing. Yeah. Um. I, I like I like the term haunting because you you've got one guy who's just shot full of arrows who's standing mm -hmm. there, the father who um, now is bleeding from the fort. It looks like something out of a horror film. Again, what a way to start your movie. I mean, at at that point, you don't know what's coming in terms of the choreography or action sequences or anything else. I mean, it it's a mm -hmm. killer start. Yeah, it's, it's rough seeing them be so successful at the start of the fight and then knowing from the previous scene that they are doomed to be trapped and likely all killed uh, in this battle because it is, there's just no hope. There's no way for anyone to get yeah. out of this. You really do feel the, the despair. Um, there's a brief moment where Panmei's men kind of run off cheering their victory and uh, the fifth son <laughs> comes in to see his dead uh, father and brother and bemoans their loyalty and how they were lured into this battle to destroy their whole family. Uh, this is Gordon Leo uh, as the fifth son here, one of the two co-stars of the film. The other one is going to be the sixth son who will momentarily also enter the screen. Uh, much more chaotic. He's still caught in the heat of battle, nearly attacking their dead brother and father before his fifth brother manages to kind of hold him off and redirect him as the fighting continues. Uh, and that is, of course, played by uh, Alexander Fusheng. So we have our two leads, our two surviving brothers identified here, both handling it in their own very different ways. Yeah, and Alexander will be a lead for three-fourths of the film. Yes. Yep. Uh, unfortunately, he did die during the production of the film in a car accident. And so his character, they had to do some rewriting to remove him from some of the final confrontations. Uh, and we'll see him sort of peter out through the rest of the film. Yes, but but who takes center stage in the fourth act, and we'll we'll get to that, is <laughs> is one of my favorites. So, yeah. Yes, uh, it really they, they they pulled off bringing it around anyway, uh, despite oh, yeah. the unfortunate circumstances. On a cool night elsewhere, their mother, Lady Yang, an elegantly dressed woman, is greeted by her eighth and ninth children, both daughters who try to comfort her about the lack of news about their brothers and fathers. Uh, they're all concerned that they haven't heard anything about this battle yet. Their mother wonders about the words of the prophecy from earlier, seven have left, six return. And 
uh, worries that they've misinterpreted the reading. And at that moment, the sixth son bursts in, yelling as though he is still in the heat of battle. Um, he's yelling after Pan Mei, and though the servants and everyone sort of cheer for his return, he doesn't seem to be able to come to his senses for very long and calm down. Uh, despite his mother trying to get him to tell her what's happened, he just becomes distressed again and is attacking anyone wildly who gets close to him. Uh, he does get fended off by his very adept sisters and mother, who are all also excellent pole fighters, which I absolutely adore. <laughs> well, eight sister is uh, Kara Hui. So, um, and, and again, the, some people think this movie's too long and, and it may be overrated. I adore it. It's another long car life film, but my young auntie is amazing. So as soon as um, you see her and then what she can do, you're just hoping that she gets a fight sequence. But she ends up taking Alexander's place in mm -hmm. the, the last section of the film because of his death, uh, which is unfortunate. But I'm I mean, I'm glad it did give her an opportunity to shine because, in my opinion, she just didn't get enough leading roles. I mean, I love Absolutely. I love Angela Mao. I do Lady Werewolf and all that stuff. But. But my young auntie, that that's a favorite. She's just so fantastic. Like, like you said, it's really unfortunate, tragic that an actor died in the production of this film. Of all the ways that could have played out, I'm very happy to see more of her and get to see yeah. her really just being a badass. There's not a, oh, there's no two ways about it. She's so yeah. skilled. She's very confident. I love to see it. Yeah, because the they play is, on, all the women are yeah. in this film. Yeah, they play on the trope of like the damsel in distress, but at the very end, she's shown to be able to be a badass. Yeah, a hundred percent. His mother is the only one who can get him to calm down as uh, the sixth brother in this moment and demands finally to know what happens. And it's now that he breaks down, realizing that he is home and tells everyone gathered that they've walked into a death trap set, set by Panme and recounts the death of each of his brothers. The first with a dozen knives, the second his guts spilling out everywhere, third even more horribly trampled, fourth captured alive. Don't worry about that one. Uh, the fifth is disappeared. And the seventh was killed by archers. Their mother nearly faints hearing this, but finally does ask after their father. And he tells her that she he has died at Li Ling's tomb. He kneels before his mother, who finally understands the prophecy. Seven left. Or, oh God, I'm about to say the prophecy wrong. <laughs> so seven left, six return. It's not that one was going to die. It's that six died and only one uh, survived. Or so they think. Or so they know. We'll find out. Little twist coming. <laughs> uh, at the castle gates, the soldiers return to the barracks where uh, the emperor demands to know why Panmei has now withdrawn despite their defeat of their enemies at Jinsha. And Panmei explains that their work is still not done as the sixth Yang son still lives. Uh, we're at the tumultuous period of the kind of Song Dynasty transition here where who's in charge is going to be played onto. This film doesn't dwell too much on the particulars of the dynastic challenges. Basically, all you got to know is Padme is trying to usur usurp someone. He's a general. He's got a lot of dynastic power. This is mostly going to be a conflict between him and the young family, but they do do occasional scenes of him talking to the emperor or other high-ranking generals, and they're usually talking about their many schemes and what have you. <laughs> so I, I do have a question for both of you because mm -hmm. um, I, I find the first part of this, uh, I, I I know some of the history in the story. And if you know what was going on in the Song Dynasty, it, it kind of gels a little bit. Mm -hmm. For a casual viewer who's coming into this film who maybe doesn't have that history, do you think it's too much? Or is it is it there for enjoyment? 
and you already know who the bad guys are and the good guys are and it and it's pretty simple i think it's a a hard line sometimes they do lean a little bit more into like in this scene for example making an assumption that maybe the viewer understands that period of chinese history um Mm -hmm. But I think that they do a good enough job of establishing good guy, bad guy to push you through the film anyway. Uh, I think there's certainly things you could do to explain more explicitly. But given that this was a Hong Kong film made for an audience who would probably be more familiar with Chinese history anyway, uh, I think it makes a lot of sense that this is the amount that they've gone for in this version of the film. Okay. Yeah, I I mean, the, the good guy, bad guy dynamic is pretty cut and dry. And to me, it's like, well, everyone's got a boss, so it's just, you know, <laughs> up the up the ranks. Uh, but no, as long as we know those are the good guys, these are the bad guys, they're going to fight. There's a revenge story. There's a hero's journey story. We're good to go. Yeah, I, I pretty much exactly that. Uh, I think this is the one scene very early on when I was a little bit confused as to oh, he's, is his boss actually trying to kill the Yangs for some reason? But uh, this is, I'd say, after this moment, they really leveled it out, and it really just makes Pan Mei the main guy to worry about. Uh, anyone who's commanding him or who he's working for is a problem for some other family to deal with because we are focusing very much on the individual conflict between clans. Yeah, I, I agree. I I have... I think people coming into this get a little confused on who who's that guy? What's he do? Mm-hmm. now? Uh, are are they friends or are they helping? <laughs> What's the conniving? If you if you can get to this part and just identify um, t- to Brad's point, like these these are the guys that are in the way of your hero. Mm-hmm. Um, it, as long as you know that, you're good to go. Now, if you want to go learn a little bit more Chinese history, that's fine too. It's not going to hurt yeah. you, you know. Song Dynasty is a very fun period to study if you're interested. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. Panmei basically in the scene volunteers to be the one who finds the two young brothers who escaped. They know that fifth and sixth are still alive somewhere. Again, forget about the fourth one. He's not going to be mentioned again. <laughs> that was, that drove me a little bit crazy. I'm like, I know that logically this is probably just related to the lore somewhere else and it's not involved in this movie. But it, man, it is. I, and I, I'm, <laughs> I'm trying to remember. Like, I didn't go back and, and restudy this stuff. Mm-hmm. I can't remember like one of them ends up getting married and and that's a whole thing like a, a whole rabbit hole and I can't remember if it's the one that gets captured and I, I don't know but it, yeah, yeah he, they forget about him and but I'm sure Chinese <laughs> audiences were like yeah that's the dude that you know went off mm-hmm. and did x y and z so exactly I have I have two older brothers and I'm the third I'm just gonna have them call me third brother from now on <laughs> I'm a big fan of that. (laughs) I do have two younger brothers, and we did just lump them all into the boys, like capital B. Like that's just that both of them are now that. (laughs) So this is a much more clear system. Uh, And when I I I learned a little bit of Mandarin uh, when I was in college, and I had two younger brothers, and the word for younger brother is Didi, and so it was just first younger brother and second younger brother in the literal translation. Like you just tack a one and a two onto them to tell which one they are. So this. Makes a lot of sense with my understanding of how this these lang- this language family works. <laughs> I have to ask this question. Okay, so did you kick either of them in the face? Like, did you did you just <laughs> did you have like, a spear? Did you have a spear? <laughs> I wish we had some pretty hardcore lightsaber fights with the like opaque plastic flip out ones, like the first oh, yeah, version yeah, yeah. of the toy. Yeah. Um, but that's I think that was pretty much the limit of our martial arts abilities. <laughs> More with the force, but yeah, that's okay. Yeah, okay. That yeah. works. That works. We got our moments in. <laughs> <laughs> you still have time to kick one in the face and just go, hey. <laughs> that's true. Boys, watch out. 
Uh, returning to the brothers of this film, the fifth brother is trekking through a dark and swampy forest, which I love all the sets in this movie. This one, it's very desaturated, but you can immediately just feel how like muddy and gross it must have been. Oh, yeah. I, I, oh, I love it. It's so tactile. <laughs> and with those lights uh, on the studio, it's probably 100 degrees in that junk. No Disgusting. way, man. Disgusting. <laughs> If it didn't have mosquitoes naturally, it sure did by the time they finished filming. Who knew what was growing in that studio <laughs> in that set? It was just a petri dish of yuck. Yeah, because you know they've used that set multiple times. You know, you're not just oh, yeah. doing this for one film. Oh, yeah. So that thing is, yeah, disgusting. It seems some use. Um, he reaches a ramshackle building and stumbling up to it, he finds inside some steamed, steamed uh, bowel bread and starts to stuff his face, which looked delicious, before... <laughs> Looking in horror at his spear, which is this elegant tip with the kind of red de decorations all around it that are all of his brothers have the same uh, effect. He takes an axe that he finds nearby and attempts to hack the uh, remnants of one of those like twisty staff uh, grabbers, straw bendy straw spears <laughs> off of his spear when the owner of the hut, who is the director cameo of the movie, <laughs> Lock oh, Carlong. He's man. I love it when he inserts himself in his movie. It's fantastic. So good. He gave himself a very noble hunter to play. <laughs> very yes. briefly. Um, he mistakes uh, fifth brother for a thief and they scuffle a bit. And again, fantastic fight choreography. You have this over the moon established talent fight uh, choreographer, director doing his own work. It, it's stunning. This um, one's fun too student. because yeah. yeah, and and this is fun too because it's more in a cramped space. So you're you're kind of using the environment more so than the first fight. Yeah, and yeah. And, and you've got master and student outside mm -hmm. of the film, um, because Gordon Liu was was supposed to be his successor at some point, uh, kind of going at it and showing their skills um, in this brief little exchange, which is a lot of fun. And Lark yeah. Carlong. Man, he delivers um, in, in front of the camera. He's so good. <laughs> he really sells the bit of, because they start their scuffling. He's like, oh my God, someone's broken into my house. I must dispel this intruder. But quickly they kind of come to a bit of a standstill and explain their whole situation. And as the fifth son explains that he's just taking shelter before he immediately goes to avenge his family, that they're not traitors after all, um, this noble hunter uh, immediately guesses that Han May must be the person who betrayed them because he once worked for him. He's like, wow, that guy doesn't have any scruples. Just the, just the worst kind of bureaucrat. He's a jerk. Yeah. Um, and tries to talk down the fifth son from rushing forward to bring evidence to the court to try and get his revenge immediately. He cautions him to wait, to bide his time. He doesn't have anything but his own word right now. And that's not going to be enough. Uh, and since he believes that he's the only young left alive, he's got to be extremely careful because there's no one else who can speak for his family. As they have this conversation and the fifth son goes to leave, the <laughs> enemy soldiers show up and completely surround the hut. Uh, coming out of the woodwork, we got that nice two-level set going on. You know that's going to come into play. <laughs> so if, if you... I've always thought this... Um, if you've seen Drunken Master 2, mm -hmm. so the, the sequence where Lark Carlong sort of We should turn this into a film. drinking game, by the way. Anytime you mention <laughs> Drunken Master 2. Shut up, Brad. <laughs> you can make your own Drunken Master 3 through this drinking game. But he did. So he got upset about <laughs> Drunken Master 2 and turned around and said, well, this is how it should have been. And he made Drunken mm -hmm. Master 3. But that hey, we're digressing. It's going to turn into like a four-hour podcast. But if, if you remember Drunken Master 2 and there's that sequence when him and Jackie are in the second floor 
of that restaurant and the axe gang comes in, the choreography of that is very similar in this setup to what's happening right here where he's trying to save the person and Lark Carlung's sort of taking on the army. So it's a, I love Drunken Master 2 is a nice callback to this sequence. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the Drunken Master 2 sequence is better, but this one's, <laughs> this one's grittier. Um, Does but Lark Carlung the choreography for both of them. In Drunken Master 2, rip a rock off the wall with his bare hands? Because he it's does true. it here. Yeah, <laughs> but Jackie boom. like took that bamboo thing and, and uh, yeah. just <laughs> took out like a hundred guys with paper cuts or bamboo cuts. But so he rips a rock some... off the wall <laughs> with his bare hands, there is, Troy. There is a very real looking rock ripped off of a very real looking wall of rock. <laughs> it's in so real. I agree. Yes. Um, I like the trident work that he does yes. here as well. Everything in this, uh, the thing I learned very early on watching this is that every single weapon in this movie is going to be a pole of some kind. If they can put it on a longer stick, it's going to be on a longer stick. I think I saw one sword later on that the eighth sister used very briefly before she too got a longer stick to use. If you're going to have a movie called the eight diagram pole. You got it, right? Yeah, no swords. (laughs) It's all poles. Yeah. And it's, it's cool. I, I, you know, I feel like a lot of younger kids especially would be like oh cool weapon to use everyone's gotta have a sword but it's really interesting to see the longer like spear and pole style of martial arts and get some different moves and choreography than you might get in every single uh, sword based one or you know these movies come up with their own weapons all the time case in point bendy straws but uh it's still fun to see something that's a bit more applicable and that has more uh history behind it yeah. and people who have come up with interesting choreography and techniques prior being able to show off a little bit so i i can't fault them for it it's still fun to point it out when it comes up. Oh, it is. i mean he, he uses an axe in this sequence i think he takes a guy out with an axe i mean mm-hmm. he uses some of the hunter stuff but you're absolutely right i mean it's a trident it's a pole it's the um oh what's the uh, brad you would know this more than i towards the end the gold um I can't remember the terminology for it. The pole with the big sword end of it oh. has a very specific. Um, yeah, I don't know what that's maybe. called. Is it glaive? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, they call it the golden sword in the dub, but I don't think that that's really accurate so much as. No. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But this, this one had, I mean, the falls from the second floor to the ground and all the mm-hmm. stuff that's going on, there's wire work here. Uh, but you will see, and I think it's more prominent in the last 30 minutes. Uh, you'll see some of the wire work where I think most people think uh, when you think about kung fu films and traditional wire work, it's, hey, we're going to hoist this guy in the air so it looks like mm-hmm. he can jump for like seven seconds or whatever. But I've always found fascinating, and, and to me, again, Jackie Chan's the king of this, the wire work that accentuates the hits mm-hmm. yeah. where they put it on somebody's back or foot. And, you know, when they get hit, you have six guys in the background just yanking that wire yeah, and that guy goes flying. Mm-hmm. There's a bunch of that in the back half, but you see some of it here as well, which is real. It, it really accentuates those hits and it makes it feel like more powerful and gritty. You do yeah. get some of the the nice wire foo as well when they're in the air. <laughs> yes. Kind of ex- mm-hmm. extending those jumps. But yeah, more so I like like you're talking about is the pools where the hits look way more powerful than they really are because, you know, six guys are pulling somebody or, you know, they're doing the twist thing where the guys, you know, twisting in the air. Because he got hit, um, yeah. I think fall that on mm-hmm. apple boxes or yeah, exactly. A yeah. mattress yeah. covered with dirt. It's awesome. Yeah, it's these guys. Topic. It's hard to because I always look for it, but like I don't see a whole lot of padding in some of these guys. So I think a lot of these falls are pretty like they're falling on mats, but it's 
there's not a whole lot of give on a lot of these. They've, they've got padding underneath their costume. But, yeah. You know, it's it's very again, it goes back to the to the to the Peking Opera and the Chinese acrobatics, because that's where their stuntmen came from for the Shaw mm-hmm. Brothers. So they can do the twists and they can take the falls. Uh, and there's very minimal padding under their costume. And they might have like a, I don't know, a mattress you find in Motel 6 <laughs> that's been there for 30 years. And they put dirt on it. And that's what you're landing on, more or less. Yeah, or I was going to say, boxes. this set is, uh, there's enough goop at the bottom of this swamp set to maybe cover it. <laughs> in terms of the sets in this film that might be most forgiving for falling on them. Uh, oh, yeah. Just- yeah of course, and of course, you got the guys that get hit and they do their flips off of the, the second the top of it onto the ground and that's mm-hmm. always beautiful. the best it's awesome. beautiful it's beautiful violence is what it is yeah. it's amazing <laughs> it's fantastic um it, the hunter does his noble last stand he helps the fifth son escape through a secret tunnel in his house he uh is eventually cornered he won't give anything up and back in his house he rips a rock off of the wall causes a cave-in as he leaps into the tunnel and is himself crushed by the rocks uh after handily defeating all of the soldiers and not giving them any information about the fifth young son realistic rocks all of them very realistic incredibly Mm -hmm. realistic i I love that kind of like foamy rock (laughs) texture i I think more movies should use that today it's the very like the star trek set look it's awesome i think all those rocks are bouncing (laughs) off of everybody i mean it's it's a hard sell the sound effects make it but if you pay close attention you're like rock shouldn't bounce like that no uh, we go back to the Yang residence where the sixth brother is paying his respects at his brother's and father's shrine. When his mother and sisters approach, the mother tells the sisters not to disturb him as they must help calm him down. They're trying to get him to to get back to his, his old self so that he can eventually testify at court. When a platoon of imperial soldiers arrive at their door and start banging on it. Hello, my cat is screaming somewhere. Don't do that now. <laughs> <laughs> She's a frequent flyer on the podcast. Ziggy, you want to make a little cameo? Ziggy? Yeah, after uh, the David Bowie album. Uh, Ziggy Stardust? <laughs> yeah. We have a cat named Samo off of Samo Hung. Oh, excellent. <laughs> oh, nice. Say hi, dude. You're so loud every other time, and then I put you in front of the microphone. <laughs> oh, now get him to the microphone. He's not talking. That's camera shy. <laughs> yep. Oh, there we oh, go. Oh, there it is. <laughs> She'll hang around uh, doing her own wire work of sorts um (laughs) but the imperial soldiers care not for my pet or the young residents uh and eventually uh pan may continues to demand that they get the attention of the residents um the sixth brother tries to rush out to fight them but he is uh stopped by his mother and sisters who rush him into a back room and off of the set for the scene the sisters open the door to let Pan Mei in, and without greeting, he tries to tell his men to search the grounds, but the mother, who commands immense uh, authority here, returns and is able to hold her own in sort of a gravitas off with Pan Mei to get him to leave, um, asking how they could disturb their mourning. He is trying to arrest a traitor, he says, explaining the public story of... <laughs> I just I want to digress for a second. So this this guy is is such a villain. He won't. I mean, he won't even knock on the door. Like mm-hmm. I I want to win the lottery and get enough money to where I don't knock on doors anymore, and I just have <laughs> six guys follow me and go knock on the door, pound on the door. Mm-hmm. This guy doesn't do anything. But I love this sequence because I feel like if a fight broke out between her and him, she would wipe the floor with him. A hundred percent. 
Yeah, she... she's got her scepter of honor. She's got oh, her emperor's man. seal. Uh, she's I, if she's point, ready to she throw had, down. Yeah. Oh yeah, she's ready to throw down immediately. <laughs> yeah. In a different movie where they just went for straight vengeance and not any sort of like, well, we have to do this the honorable way, or we have to make sure we have evidence to back ourselves up and clear our name. She could have ended the movie right here. <laughs> oh, she's taking that guy's head for sure. <laughs> yeah. She she would have ended it. It would have been a, a forty minute movie at that point. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, but she explains, you know. Uh, what do you mean we don't have any honor? Look, we have the emperor's own seal and I have this staff, uh, this scepter that uh, is justice and were any of my sons to come home, I would have already turned them over to the court. Uh, He tries to present his warrant uh, and he tries to say, well, you know, if either of your two surviving sons, fifth and sixth, do uh, come back, you have to let us arrest them. Um, and this, we get, an, I love a shot. I love the framing of this. He's kind of talking as she's got her head turned away, cheated, uh, much like a stage production towards the audience, towards the camera. And we see her expression very, very slightly change as she hears that there is a second son that is still alive um, before going back to telling him to fuck off, basically. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, this is, and again, if you if you know about this legend, um, it, it makes total sense for these characters because these characters um, of this family, the, the young f- family were just renowned for being the most loyal mm-hmm. because she even points out, she's like, you may have a warrant, but I have this from the emperor. And so they're known across the land for being incredibly um, loyal to the empire at that time mm-hmm. period. And to walk into that family and question their loyalty, she she kind of knows, hey, look, we got street cred. You're way <laughs> out of your territory on this one. Yeah, you can and do I a lot of... I love that she, she plays those cards uh, just beautifully in that scene. Perfectly. Uh, you know, she's got... He may have the, the schemes. He may have had the upper hand for the moment, but she's got the level of gravitas that just no one can touch no matter what kind of she she woo <laughs> brad is it is it appropriate to say she woo tang them is that is that how we could the, that could that the kids say she, sure yes okay <laughs> okay dad yes there you go word mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> the fifth son meanwhile shouts his way out of the exit of the tunnel which seems to be right in front of the house in question i love that for the secret tunnel construction um and he finds around him the now heavily destroyed hut surrounded by all of the dead soldiers, um, almost picking up the hunter's pitchfork when some falling rubble catches his attention and he spots the caved-in tunnel entrance and the hunter's leg sticking out from some rocks, uh, picking up a bloody piece of fur to have a, a moment to thank him for saving his life and declaring that he will take his advice to heart and wait before making any sort of rash action, uh, biding his time to avenge his family. I, I think in the subtitle version, they use they use a Chinese proverb about um, like waiting ten years for revenge mm. or something like that. So um, he he doesn't want to do it at the beginning, but as soon as um, you know Lark Carlong is killed by those realistic rocks, he's like, "Well, I'm going <laughs> to take that advice." Yeah, he, he makes a noble sacrifice, and this influences the the young man. Um, He makes a fire that night to rest and symbolically burns the decorations and tip off of his spear uh, in in a moment of incognito, honorable, something or other. Words are escaping me, which is great for a spoken word audio medium. (laughs) (laughs) 
Uh, back at the Yang residence, the sixth son is fighting his way through a bunch of unfortunate servants until his mother once more uh, pole fights her way to humbling her son. Again, every time she's on screen, she is kicking ass, and I love that for her. <laughs> he eventually calms, and his sister presents him his spear, uh, which he cries and holds. He's in a very delicate mental state um, right now. At the monastery, the fifth brother arrives with a spear tipless pole in hand, just wrapped with a little bit of red at the top, uh, otherwise still the same weapon. Uh, as all of the monks are cleaning around him, he approaches the statue of Buddha and slams down his pole, which knocks one of the unfortunate monks off from the top of the statue he was dusting, but luckily he pushes the pole out so that he can sort of land on it like a high-low bar and he is not seriously injured. Great stunt work from- Which is awesome, monk. which is awesome. <laughs> yes. It's those little flourishes that yeah. happen in this film. And and look, if if you're a Gordon Liu fan, if you like Shaw Brothers, the minute Gordon Liu shows up at a monastery, you're like, yes. Here, right. I mean, Here we go. Yep. That hair yeah, guy, is not long for this world. for 36 chambers <laughs> Shaolin. So when he shows up in this environment, you're like, it's on like Donkey Kong. We're ready mm -hmm. for the training sequences. Oh, yep. because All he wants to do is cut that hair. Yeah. <laughs> he's just got to get rid of that wig and give me some training sequences and I'm ready to go. Yep. Uh, he just keeps declaring over and over that he wants to be a monk uh, as various different, more important, highly rated monks tell him no, all of the men arrive. They ex ask what he expects to find with them, men of peace, and the fifth son kind of falls to his knees and just keeps declaring that he wants to be a monk, but the reverend master, as the dub called him, uh, senses the rage and war in his eyes and turns him away, uninterested in his life story. Despite this, the fifth son does explain that he is the fifth son of the Yang family, um, and seeing his bladeless spear, which could never belong to a, a Yang man, they always have blades on their spears, he's accused of hiding behind their good name, but uh, as he continues to assert his name is Yang, he spars a bit with the head monk, and the reverend notices the label on his spear, conveniently labeling it as, like, property of the Yang family, and uh, <laughs> he is all Very good Very convenient. <laughs> mm-hmm. They know his true identity, but they still will not grant him uh, a status as a monk. Uh, he can't seem to shed all of his anger, all of his worldly rage, and because of that, he can never be dedicated enough to Buddha. Uh, and he's, they try to ignore him and walk off and ask him to leave. But the fifth son does not give in. He continues to give chase, eventually entering a chamber where a man is in the process of having his head shaved, and he ask the monks not to stand in his way. He insists that he is willing to give up the world to become a monk. Um, and he continues to get chided for the rage in his heart repeatedly. Basically go back and forth like, I want to be a monk. You you have too much rage. I want to be a monk. Dude, It's you're, in the last five seconds, you have not gotten any less rage. We can't, we can't yeah, go back and forth like this. You're getting more rage. <laughs> Every time we say no, your rage is going up. Yeah. It's not going down. Uh, eventually, the reverend says that if he wants to shave his own head, no one will stop him. And while none of the monks will help him, he is left to his own devices with the razor and the statue of Buddha. And in a very powerful, dramatic moment, he almost violently shaves his own head. There's like some of that really nice, vibrant red fake blood uh, that is very well, I, iconic. Look, if, <laughs> if you're shaving a wig off, which <laughs> you know you know it's a wig and how they did mm -hmm. I'm still kind of impressed how they get the cuts and everything and look like it's shaving but it's a wig right um and, and even more impressive is him trying to burn holes in his temple yeah um, he with like, the incense stuff and and it, it it's not straight so it comes up just looking like dots on his head which is kind of cool 
yeah, it's a very rough version of sort of forcing himself into this role that he's probably not well suited for at this point, as they have many times tried to attest to him, but going through with it anyway. Um, yeah, he didn't read the job description. <laughs> no, I guess desperate times call for desperate measures, but even so, what a That's ways right. to go. Although Gordon Leo, maybe not the most desperate move to shave your head <laughs> in a movie. We were all waiting for it. Yeah, he just, I mean, he could have took the wig off and that'd been fine. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Now that you shaved his head, we're just counting down to when he is wearing no shirt, and that comes mm-hmm. later on. Oh, Don't yeah. worry, we'll get there. <laughs> yeah. Yes. I, I think, you know, I always thought Donnie Yen started that trend where it's like, mm-hmm. man, he's got to be shirtless or whatever. But if you go uh, back, it's it's Gordon Liu. Gordon Liu's been holding it down. Don- yep. I mean, not that Donnie Yen doesn't do a great job of it in his own. <laughs> oh, no, no, no. He's a boxer dropper. I Yeah, I love Donnie Yen. So, um, <laughs> mm-hmm. Uh, back at the young house, Six Brother is eating a meal and still suffering from those nightmares. The sisters worry that if he stays mad, he can never testify. And though he wants to rush to court to say all that he saw, um, his family stops him for similar reasons to the fifth brother of like, you've got no evidence. And also you're a little insane right now. So maybe let's cool it and then we'll figure it out. Um, we'll see progressively less and less of him as the film goes on. Again, this is a lot of this is because of external factors. The actor passed away mid filming. Um, but pretty much every time we will see him will be a scene like this where we cut back and he is suffering from his nightmares. Uh, they just kind of get to be shorter and shorter scenes each time to fade him out of the movie a little bit. At the monastery, the fifth brother wakes up now in the clothes of a monk and is greeted by a group of monks who explain that he's been asleep for days and bring him some hot food. Uh, They further explain that the abbot has said once he's recovered, he's to leave immediately as he is still not fit to be a monk, even though he shaved his head. Um, As he kind of wanders around, he sees the monks practicing pole fighting on some really, I absolutely love these little wooden wolf dummies with their metal teeth. They look great. I want one of those in my house. (laughs) It looks like a giant rat. Yeah. Almost. It did, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's just got a very, like, I love the construction of, like, the paneling on the side of it. They're not made of straw. They're, like, wood kind of carved into different shapes. It's just, they, they think they're neat. I really With like the metal teeth. Yeah. yeah. it's really cool. <laughs> uh, they're being supervised by two more important monks, and the fifth, son, the fifth son later shows up, pole in hand, and attempts to join in to the practice, but they are such an organized machine that he cannot find an opening to jump in with any of the monks that are going around the wolf models and practicing their moves. He asks the master for permission to join the guardians and train in stick fighting, because though he may not be well-suited to the life of a monk, he is an adept fighter, and he thinks he could benefit them in this way but he's told that the abbot has forbade it. Uh, He tries to show his ability to get them to let him in by destroying one of the wolf models, but he just gets chided for using such a violent method as the master explains that their goal is only to detooth the wolves so that they run off uh, and don't, you know, leave them alone. It's the more nonviolent option. Uh, but Yang sees this as foolish as the still alive wolves will simply regroup and attack again. Uh, and they sort of spar about it. <laughs> so, but I I think this is sort of the crust of the film mm-hmm. in that you, you always have the Shaolin Temple going, you're too mad. You can't be a monk. And then you have this guy going, yeah, but you guys aren't violent enough because mm-hmm. these things are just going to keep happening, right? So the wolves, what, what I like about this film is the wolves represent this style that the Shaolin monks have adopted, which is going to have an amazing payoff at the end. <laughs> yes. Where they're Maybe just taking the best payoff these, ever. Yeah, yeah, it's amazing. They're, they're taking these teeth out of the wolves, right? That's what they're mm-hmm. practicing. Um, 
the the fifth brother kind of walks up and he's like, well, let me show you how to kill him. So then there's this debate over what is the appropriate response in these situations, which actually kind of plays out through the rest of the film. So the, the, the debate they're having at this time period is really the debate of the film and how it's going to resolve itself in the back end, which I think is some really good foreshadowing. I mean, mm-hmm. most people don't give these Kung Fu films from the Shaw brothers enough credit for their, their narrative and storytelling and their ability to use things like foreshadowing. You look at this sequence and they're setting up like the, the narrative style, the big debate of the film, um, and then telling you how things are going to play out towards the end of it within just this one sequence. Yeah. I think you're, you hit the nail on the head with that. Uh, Something that was really impressive about this film all the way through is just that the narrative structure is pretty straightforward. There's like, you know, one or two speed bumps, but that that's true of just yeah. about any movie. You know, nothing's perfect. But uh, once we sort uh, of Drunken get... Master 2 is, but yeah, go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my bad. I didn't mean to insult Drunken Master 2. Again, a perfect movie as we've established on this <laughs> episode. Uh, but, you know, other than maybe one or two instances of a little bit too much political machinations confusing things, once we kind of get into now there are the two brothers left, even though they had to rewrite and adapt for a real world situation, there is still a very clear narrative through line to this film that flows really well. So, like you're saying, this scene is pivotal. I think this is probably maybe the most important scene of the first half where you get so much set up that that will later be paid off. But even throughout this sequence, everything just has a great pace to it. Um, Much like how all of the fights have an amazing sort of rhythm with all of the different sound impact sounds and choreography, the film itself is also choreographed in that kind of incredible way. Almost like a musical, you would say, right, Brad? Yeah, Yeah, like a musical. And you don't like musicals. I don't understand that. (laughs) No. I like watching people get kicked in the face, Troy. There's a difference. I I get it. I get it. One of the older monks does speak up for the young brother and says that he has to unlearn his violent ways before he can train with them. But if he can sort of do the do the homework beforehand, he can start with them from the beginning. So the fifth son goes to meditate under a waterfall before doing some stick practice, tangling and detangling some vines, which I thought was a very cool little set piece there. Um, he continues his training, jumping from stone to stone in a pond, splashing the water each time, doing very controlled movements. Uh, And one of the masters sees him practicing and expresses admiration for his skills, but still insists, like, you still got to go, dude. You got to get out of here at some point. Too much rage. Too much Mm -hmm. rage. Too much rage. You got rage. You got to deal with that rage. (laughs) The fifth son continues to insist that he will stay exactly where he is and continues to practice as the master walks off. The fifth son is praying when the movement of monks behind him catches his attention as one of the masters has just left the monastery for some reason. Uh, said master arrives at Yang's house, uh, the Yang Manor, and despite some questioning from the servants and the guards, they do let him through. One of the sisters receives him, and the servants explain that he's requested a bowl of vegetables cooked by Lady Yang and sort of forced his way in. The sister tries to turn him away, but he ends up doing his whole humble monk routine, and the Sister and the monk end up sparring, which again, anytime anyone has an excuse to start sparring in this movie, it is always like (laughs) fantastic. But asking asking her to cook Mm -hmm. is kind of an insult. Yes. So um, that's that's why they're sparring. So again, I kind of like this because the the film is playing with these traditional values. Um, And and if you're not familiar with it, you'd be like, well, that was kind of silly. I mean. (laughs) 
but you know, take it at that context of its if it's accuracy and everything. You're like, okay, that's kind of a bold move. I mean, mm-hmm. that's like walking up to the White House and be like, dude, make me some ramen. Yeah, I and think it's very like, intentionally a bold move too, because it is something that yeah. immediately gets. Otherwise, like, okay, a monk coming by and asking for food is not the most unusual thing in the world. It'd be yeah. very easy for him to do that and then not get any attention. But because he demands this insulting thing, the lady of the house and her her sister, her daughters come and they they see him and they hear him and he's able to deliver his message because he's been very brash and it worked out yes. for him. <laughs> Absolutely. I like how I like how all these Shaw Brother films are produced by Joel Silver. Uh because like every 15 <laughs> minutes or 10 minutes there's always got to be a fight scene. You'd never go in a in a Shaw Brothers film more than 10 minutes without two people fighting at some point in time. Like it, uh, if it hits that 10 minute mark, you're having a fight scene right now. Again, that's what makes it amazing. Oh yeah, I'm not complaining. I think it's awesome. <laughs> it sounded like you were complaining there. For no, I'm not complaining. I wish it was like okay. every six minutes, but it yeah. almost becomes wish- like a form of greeting of like, well, you see someone, you got to spar a little bit before you can get into like the yeah, you gotta, what's you going know, on. yeah. <laughs> well, and that's that's another thing about a lot of these films is there's a lot of character development in the fight scenes, and mm-hmm. that you get it with with the sister with the um, eighth sister. You just get so much you learn so much about these characters through the way they fight and how they fight and, and if they have honor or if they don't have honor, it's a really cool way to develop your characters mm-hmm. through kicking people in the face. It's, it's pretty awesome. I would, mo- I would definitely watch more romantic comedies if there was more kicking in the <laughs> face, but the, and I, I'm with you, Brad. The other thing I don't think people realize is especially with these Shaw Brothers studio films I mean, if, if you think about why Kung Fu films, especially in the 70s mm-hmm. and under, under, you know, certain groups within even the U.S., they took to it, right? Because it was sort of an underdog story or it was a group of people sort of fighting the system. Mm-hmm. Um, these movies are, are really good about highlighting even the Hong Kong citizen of what they felt about communism, some of these are very anti-communist films, which I don't think people understand. And it wasn't until you get into the handover and stuff like that, that mm-hmm. all of a sudden the period pieces became pro-government where these were very anti-government um, in terms of, you know, the big brother communism standpoint. So there, there's so much to unpack in a film like this. And a lot <laughs> of those Shaw Brothers studios that again, people just do not give enough credit to. Yeah, there's a rich history of using China's past to sort of comment on China's present and Hong Kong for a long time because they were under different rule than mainland China had an opportunity in their creative sphere in particular to really explore that. And that's a lot of times if you have a story like this one that is set in kind of the dynastic period, likely there are some overtones or some undertones that might be indicating that actually they're talking about the current Communist Party or uh, like later movies tend to get into the handoff from China to the UK or reverse that uk to china yeah and they, and and then the government kind of forces them to be pro-government mm-hmm. um brad and i've have covered our fair share of, of hong kong films and i think one of the most recent ones we did was the donnie yen raging fire which, oh, yeah. which we both love mm-hmm. but you you know you have to remember when you're watching like korea is where it's at right now in action films mm-hmm. in my opinion but oh yeah e- even even the donnie yen stuff sakura skip it um but uh, raging fire, you, you have to expect that there's going to be this five minute, like, yo, go, go government. 
Yay. speech. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yay. You know, government's not all that bad because their government is approving these scripts. But mm-hmm. yeah, Donnie Yid turns to the camera is... and just starts talking about the Chinese government. It's <laughs> yeah. kind of weird. It is weird. But I mean, this period, I, um, you know, through probably late 90s, early 2000s, I appreciate it because to your point, Sophia, it's you're you're watching commentary of you know the citizen and the government and their environment through these films the face kicking is so awesome though you forget <laughs> that it's there it's very subtle but it, it it's incredibly effective if you yes. add kicks to things people will watch it and then they will That's hear what I your said. message there should also be more like face kicking in <laughs> politics and i think we would i think we would solve the world's problems just sort actually. of merge the wwe and <laughs> Yes. Oh my God, that'd be amazing. I agree. (laughs) The announcers would be pretty interesting, if nothing else. Uh, My God, that's that's Joe Biden's music. (laughs) (laughs) All politicians have to pick a walk-on song, and then also they have to do some sort of choreographed chair throw to it. I've only seen one WWE event, and it was the Royal Rumble, which I do think would translate really well to this. And we just kind of keep keep adding guys. (laughs) Oh my. Okay, so uh, that's how we pick our next president. No holds barred stuff like that. Are, are you, have you watched any of those? A couple. I'm not as well versed as in kind of more martial arts focused stuff, but I'm trying to pick it up where I can. Okay, we're just, we're just gonna have to have you on our show and pick a couple of bombs, and and <laughs> awesome. uh, you'll you'll see how the martial arts translates poorly over to <laughs> WWE sponsored films. <laughs> Only one way to find out. Um, yeah. But the the monk is finding out that uh, he's pretty clever because he asks once again for her to cook him a bowl of vegetables and. Uh, out of nowhere, the sixth brother jumps in and goes on the attack, but the mother once more stops him, explaining that her son has been very unhinged after the battle. The monk expresses his sadness that the sixth son hasn't regained his sanity. Otherwise, he might be a, a match in combat for the fifth son, and this immediately catches everyone's attention because, whoa, he knows that the fifth one is alive? What could that mean? The sixth brother immediately asks for the fifth brother, but the monk won't say anything more overtly. Uh, but before he leaves, the mother asks where to send the food, and he tells her the location of the monastery where the fifth brother is hang- hanging out. Um, and the mother immediately understands that this is him telling her the whereabouts of her son. Uh, and I thought that was just absolutely so incredible and clever. I loved everyone in this scene. I have no notes. <laughs> it's so good. It's yeah, so it is, good. It is very good. Uh, the sixth son wants to immediately go rush off and find his brother, uh, but she insists that he remain and recover so that he can someday testify in court. But luckily, she has an idea that we will get to in just a little bit. As the monk is walking away, he is ambushed by a group of archers and ruffians, and though he asks for the help of some diners nearby, he gets no aid as everyone seems to be working for uh, Panmei and his goons. He does some really great jumps from like pavilion to pavilion. Again, kind of the fantastic sort of middle ground of wire work of we're just helping someone do a little bit more than they normally could. And it's accentuating all the movement. They Um, had a heavy lunch. Without the lunch, he probably could have made it on his own. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, He does it. He puts up a good fight, but eventually he is pinned down and refusing to answer any questions about the fifth brother. Uh, He is attempted to be captured, but he kills himself with a like... I thought it was a fork at first. I think it's just a spear tip of some kind to the throat um, before he can reveal anything further. The commander is frustrated with his men's efforts to find the fifth brother failing, as this is seriously delaying his efforts to take over the Song Empire. Uh, and they suggest breaking into the Yang house to kidnap Lady Yang, 
But Pan May, ever the one to provide some sort of scheme, posits something else entirely. Uh, since they assume that the Youngs know where the brother is, if they simply follow the Youngs, they'll lead them to the fifth brother. So they're going to wait and do a little stakeout, do a little sneaking around. The mother decides to send her eighth daughter to the monastery. Uh, this is where she'll sort of take on the um, deuteragonist role for the rest of the movie. She's going to become very important to hear forward. Not that she wasn't super important before, but, you know, upgrading a little bit. Uh, well, yeah, at this, at this point, I think they they had stopped shooting for a while mm -hmm. after because they were in the middle of shooting. Alexander was doing like three films at the time. This is one of them. So when the accident happened, they had to shut down production. So I think it's around this time period they had to go back and rewrite the screenplay. Mm -hmm. And you start seeing um, Kara coming into the sequence at this point because now you've got a whole different movie that they have to plan for. Exactly. Uh, and I would say from here on out, the martial arts sequences uh, have a lot more emotion to them. And if you read interviews or, or see interviews about the people um, that were participating, the reason why there's all that emotion is they were taking their pain about losing their friend out. And to me, from here on out, you see all of that emotion. Like those mm -hmm. tears are real yeah. because at this point they've, you know, they're, they're pretty much mourning the loss of somebody they've worked with for, for years. And I think it, I think the story feels pretty natural the way it goes. Like, I don't feel like the it's hindered because of him not being able to, to finish the film. I, I to me, it feels almost right that she, because the women are so important in this film mm. to like send her off. It feels pretty natural. Um, I really kind of prefer that choice to be perfectly honest with you. That That's a good point. It, if the women were not as strong throughout the entire film, mm -hmm. I think it would it would have yeah, been. Yeah, it really feels odd like they're setting up the the women the whole time for like yeah. a third yeah, act. That is a good point. Yeah, like a third act journey that they go on and yeah, you, you keep waiting for the the daughters to like you know go off and do something. They're they're shown to be so competent, and the mother, of course, like shown to be so competent. You just expect them to be involved, so it does feel very natural, like you're saying, mm -hmm. for them to yeah. then kind of carry through the last act of the film. Uh, also, the previous scene where we saw the sixth brother kind of get carried off, I I didn't want it to be funny, but it was a little bit humorous of he's basically thrown over the chair at the back of the set and then he exits <laughs> the movie forever. It's it's rough. <laughs> it's such a tragic real life event and such a funny way to exit the movie forever. <laughs> it's memorable, but yeah. knowing what's happening behind the scenes, you're like, that sucks, man. Yeah. Um, but the eighth daughter is determined to be the one to set off to the monastery to find her brother. She's given a piece of jade from her mother's scepter to take to convince him to return to the temple as sort of a symbol. Um, that night, some servants are taking out a very stinky basket of trash to a dump full of green of some kind. Uh, and after a bit of back and forth, they make it past the guards, checking the whole while to see if they're being followed when... Uh, eventually determining that they're in a, a sneaky enough spot, the eighth sister emerges from the basket and she and her servants flee on their horses towards the monastery, her disguised as a young man for traveling safely purposes. She does a lot of hiding in the third act. Yeah. <laughs> She's very good at popping out of enclosed spaces. Uh, yes. Incredible work in that regard. <laughs> 
why I like Brad. He's very good at that too. Yeah, that's why we connect. <laughs> the best hide and seeker you've ever seen. He is, or you haven't out, seen. Oh yes, or you yes. haven't seen <laughs> exactly. Uh, but speaking of being seen, some men do see her and begin to follow her. So, uh-oh. Um, at the temple, the fifth brother insists on seeing the abbot, though his fellow monk- monks beg him to wait a few more days. Uh, as in the gym, all the monks are sitting in silence meditating, which confuses the fifth brother uh, as he kind of tries to get any of their attention. He notices that one or two of them have tears in their eyes, and he's uh, told that the Elder is dead, killed after visiting the young family in an attempt to help prove their innocence. The fifth brother is told to leave at once, but instead he vows to continue the fight where the abbot left off and proves he's up to it by whacking the wolf dummy uh, eventually. Though it is being manipulated by one of the other masters, he just knocks out its teeth and does not do any other damage to it, showing that he has learned something of the lesson. Though he is still himself, he has taken in some of the this monastery's teachings. Very, very cool. Very full Oh, yeah. <laughs> and it's been 10 minutes, so we got to hit something. Yeah, of course. The wolf dummy yeah. is there. We're already in the room. Why not? Joel Silva's <laughs> tapping his watch. <laughs> Come, on, guys. <laughs> Come on, guys, guys, no kicking in the face. Let's go pick it mm-hmm. up. The abbot accepts him and uh, all is well at the monastery. The eighth sister arrives at an inn and is immediately almost robbed of her jade, like within seconds. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, after some very careful horse stunt work, she explains to the would-be robber that he has no right to ask after the jade pendant, and he immediately accuses her of stealing it, as she doesn't want to say what it is to give away her identity. And he's like, "Well, if you won't tell me, then maybe you stole it." It's a whole all right. So, so time out. The, the horse, the, you, 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 you kind of went past the horse stunt pretty quickly. <laughs> That's pretty impressive. Like a guy's hanging right. off a horse, she's riding it. I don't know if you've all been around a horse before, but they are scary. Into into be just hanging off of a horse and, and doing what they're doing is pretty, pretty impressive. This felt like the most real danger that anyone on set was probably ever in while filming. I'm like, there's, there's a reason this horse is not doing like any sort of jumps or anything and kind of is just moving backwards and forwards. Cause if you get too much motion with that horse involved at any point, that choreography just exponentially increases in real life danger. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. I, but again, it's Lockhart Long. I mean, he's what's great about, this choreography is he's going to incorporate the environment into it and mm-hmm. he's going to have these interesting setups the most interesting setup coming here in a little bit yeah um with with the big final battle but that's what i've always loved about his stuff he he really incorporates the environment into this and you get that little horse stunt work which again it you you kind of gloss over it in this film but on its own it's pretty damn impressive yeah, yeah. Uh, the I think this movie really hits its stride in the last 35 to 40 minutes. Mm -hmm. I I like the setup and everything like that. But once you start kind of getting the last 35, 40 minutes, it ramps up and it becomes pretty spectacular. Yeah. I'll, I'll go on record and say right now. So from (laughs) here on out, this film is probably top five martial arts sequences. Um, I think it would be really hard to find stuff. So the horse is probably a, 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 is, is a good indicator of from here on out, mm-hmm. you're going to see some stuff that um, from a choreography standpoint, from a filming standpoint, 
it just hasn't been done better uh, in 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 the eighties. Now I'll I'll say eighties because it's it's hard to go like what's the top five? Well, number one Strong Master two, but um, <laughs> I was gonna say. Yeah, but if, if you're breaking these th- things down into decades, the last, to Brad's point, 35 minutes, um, I think is some of the most impressive um, face kicking you're going to see in the 80s. And what's even more impressive, this is 84. Mm-hmm. Shaw Brothers are on the decline at this point. It's mm-hmm. only, I, I want to say, three more years before they shutter the film studio and start concentrating on television yeah. So this is sort of the twilight time for the Shaw brothers and for them to put the, these last 35 minutes out is just even more impressive. Yeah, it's some of the most like stunning choreography I think I've seen in recent memory. I'm try- trying to conjure up something that was better than it other than, of course, Drunken Master 2, as we've established. Uh- <laughs> right. And, and it's, it's, it's great choreography. Um, Brad and I have talked about this several times. I, I like choreography that's a little messy too, mm-hmm. because that's where the realism comes in. Yeah. And there's some stuff that happens in here that it looks fluid, it looks graceful, but there's these elements of sloppiness that go in and some of that line pulling where you see like the effects of stuff. It's a perfect combination of all those things to where you, the fighting feels like people died on set. Yeah. I'm not saying that's a good thing. It's just, <laughs> it, it gives you that sense of danger. It, it doesn't feel, you know, I love the John Wick movies, but there are a couple sequences where you're like, eh, it's too much polish. Yeah, there's too, um, they're too really, slick. Yeah, I really don't think that guy got hurt the way that these people got hurt in the last 35 minutes of this film. Yeah, exactly. Speaking of some choreography, though, some more fighters are going to join in this uh, little spurt to take the pendant. Uh, but eventually it does come down to the eighth sister and a young man with a golden sword on a pole, which... She immediately recognizes as the golden sword of the young uh, clan. It's theirs. And she's like, how did you get your hands on that? Now who's doing all of the stealing and the questioning, huh? We're going to flip this thing around. He says that he got it at Jin Sha. And she finally reveals herself as the eighth young, uh, the eighth sister. And they all kind of come down again, much like with the hunter and the fifth brother earlier. We just need to get the fighting out of our introductory phase, and then we can go on to the actual explaining each other's situations to everyone. I say hi <laughs> over there, right? Yeah. <laughs> uh, they have tea, and he explains that he was wounded defending this sword, and uh, that the shopkeep here at the inn has been helping him ever since, as they're loyal to the young family, as again, the family has this reputation uh, in their legends and in this movie of being extremely loyal and honorable, and they don't believe that they would have really betrayed the, the kingdom in the way that's been described. Um, she explains why she's there, and that her brother might be at a nearby monastery, and the, the, the jade is to convince him to come back home. They decide to head to the monastery immediately, but just then, at that exact second, Panmei's men show up and surround the inn. The shopkeep helps her hide in the back, and though he is beat up a little bit, he doesn't admit to her being there, and the men and the soldiers lock the whole place down, thinking that the fifth brother will come to meet his sister here at the inn, so if they just lock it down, he'll show up in time. You know, I... I if you're if you're talking about like impressive acrobatics to how they capture her, how they capture some of these people, mm-hmm. they they pretty much like spread their arms and legs and then like hold them up in the air, and that looks like the most painful position ever. Awful. Yeah. And it's with those bendy straws too. The bendy so straws, that, yeah. I can't imagine they have a lot of comfort built into those. No, it it looks incredibly painful um, across the board every time they do that sequence. Mm-hmm. 
That night, the young man is walking the floor to bring his boss a snack when he's caught by the guards and nearly stopped, uh, but he manages to talk his way out of it with some help from the shopkeep, and the guards go back to the shadows. They, like, disappear behind some of the pillars in this very conveniently two-level open space with a lot of large pillars placed around. If that's not reading as, like, final combat to you guys now, by the end of the movie, it certainly will be. <laughs> exactly. Quentin Tarantino's taking all the notes on this, too. Everything. <laughs> the guards return to the shadows, and a few moments later, the young man returns with a now empty tray, except it's not just, it's not the young man. It's, in fact, the eighth daughter. Ooh, she's using her powers of disguise. Uh... We see the, there's this coffin in the middle of the room that the lid shuffles a little bit in a little close-up. Uh, and just then, the the young man with the sword tries to start tying it up when he uh, is stopped by a pound maze men who are like, what, what are you doing moving this coffin around in the middle of the night? What's going on? They open up the coffin after he tries to sort of talk them down to letting him take it out of there and inside they find wrapped up the golden spear of the young and the eighth daughter at this point cuts her losses hiding under a dead body and leaps from the coffin going on the attack. There is a line in here that I, I wanted to point out because the young man in part of trying to get them to let him take the coffin away is like, oh, well, we don't want the, the dead person to turn into something else. Uh, that is a Jiangshi. It is the commonly translated as the Chinese vampire, uh, more based likely on a Taoist practice of walking the dead to a different location so they looked like they were hopping. Uh, it's a hopping Taoist priest is how it usually shows up in some of the like movies in the 70s and 80s. It's incredibly cool and I, for a brief brief moment I was like oh my god did I miss one? Is it in this movie? No 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 it's just a brief little reference. You were hoping but, for like a Mr. Vampire part 8. Mr. Vampire. Oh yeah. much. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and Encounters of the Spooky Kind Mr. Vampire. Oh, vampire versus yeah. Vampire's personal favorite. That one's I great. I love those hopping vampires. God damn. Oh god how many hours do we have? Because we can just go down <laughs> that rabbit hole right now <laughs> we'll have to have you guys back on it and do some do some more of this because this is oh my gosh yes yes oh. yes, yes mr um, vampire yes please god i love that one uh <laughs> but back to the movie we're talking yeah, about. yeah yeah this one this one well, this yeah because we're getting to we're getting to the part we're getting to the part she leaps out of the coffin she's got the golden sword uh which is a spear or glaive of some kind in her hands and they are fighting their way through the guards uh, and though many of the workers of the inn are killed, many of the guards are themselves incapacitated in some way. Uh, she is eventually caught with the aforementioned bendy straws and strung up. And she's like hung upside down from the second level balcony and interrogated by Pan Mei, who demands she tell him where the fifth brother is. Uh, and she stalwartly refuses as she does uh and is told that she is going to be hung if she does not comply. The the young man uh, who previously guarded the golden sword grabs the jade from her belt and runs uh, as fast as he can towards the monastery. Once again, Panmei directs his men to not give chase because if they wait, the fifth brother will simply come to them as they have the eighth sister. Uh, they have all of the, the weight here. They've got the bait. They just got to hold out. The young man makes it to the monastery, bleeding and exhausted and almost fully collapsed, uh, just asking over and over again for the fifth young brother. Uh, eventually, the fifth appears and the young man shows him the jade, telling him the eighth sister is at that inn nearby where she was ambushed. And the fifth brother is immediately like, all right, now, now we're in it. Now I got to go. I got to do this whole thing. Uh, the master attempts to stop him from leaving. Uh, but before he goes, the fifth brother just simply requests that the abbot let him go. And the abbot reminds him, Buddha is against 
all killing and any circumstance and they once more spar as sort of a hello goodbye <laughs> okay okay so I, I here i have a question mm-hmm. how many times did you watch this movie sophia uh i watched it this morning for the first time <laughs> okay brad how, how many times did you watch it uh since i knew we were watching i i watched it twice all the way through and then i watched like the last half an hour again today i did the same thing so i watched it twice <laughs> and that from here on out so the 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 stick fighting between him and the abbot um so i saw it twice when i watched the film twice then i watched it again just that section then mm-hmm. my son was coming through and i'm like cameron come here, come here, come here. i gotta show you this so i made him watch it my wife was trying to grade papers and then i'm like you should stop grading papers and watch this last one so from from here on out is again where it lives up to that you're gonna find probably top five oh, 80s yeah. action set pieces from here on out you're you're gonna watch it over and over again they really make use of the room in this scene they're they're fighting oh, yeah. in this room in the temple and as they are and very purposefully uh the fifth son is moving pillows and scratching the floor and he's drawing the like yin yang symbol on the floor which will be very symbolic for the abbot to eventually let him go but they also like throw lamps back and forth at each other using the poles that they have and they're like one of them uh, at one point throws two pillows the other one steps on and slides a little bit and it's just like great use of the space in addition to yeah, he the knocks his shoes off. it's incredible um, <laughs> You get you get this amazing overhead camera shot of the action. So this sequence specifically, just from a cinematography standpoint, is fantastic in mm-hmm. terms of how they have the action moving. And you're looking at them moving across the screen, but the camera is in pace and their rhythm cut to an overhead shot to watch that same thing play out. The, the camera placement, the movement, everything else in the choreography it's textbook, like, this is how you do action choreography. Oh, yeah. Yep. I think this scene might have my favorite fight chore- like fight cinematography of the entire film. Uh, not that the fight that won't come next is not incredible in its own right, but I think in terms of just, like, looking at the whole thing from a camera point of view, this one, just yeah. it, it's perfectly matched. The, yeah, technically, this. this is probably better um, just because of that shift in the camera. But, I mean... Mm-hmm. The camera movement is so important when you're when you're doing this choreography because the cameraman is almost like the third person in the fight yeah. and you have to keep it you know we got a lot of up close camera up in like the early 2000s and stuff but then you look on back in the 80s with doing these and they're still in mid shots wider shots and you're seeing everything it just makes the fight flow a lot better when that camera is feeling like it's another person in the fight. Um, and they do it so well in this. And then they shift to overhead. You're like, technically, why are we doing this? But it looks so good. Yeah. Yeah. Because yeah. you can see the diagram he's creating from that mm-hmm. overhead shot. With yeah. The, exactly. yeah. Then you get the payoff with the diagram. It's absolutely yeah. brilliant. Yeah. It's so good. Seeing that he has drawn this yin yang symbol uh, and clearly has learned some lessons on restraint and, you know, <laughs> Being in, out of his own head and out of his rage, the abbot gives him his blessing, uh, gives the fifth brother his like red sash from his, his robes. They bow to each other and the fifth brother sets off to the end of the film. <laughs> yeah, well, you, you fight someone when you greet them and then you fight them when you leave. It's just <laughs> customary. Yeah. yeah. Uh, carrying, I could not get over how much I loved the beginning of this fight. Uh, he, the fifth brother rolls up to the inn with a bi- big bunch of bamboo on a cart. And as he approaches the inn, the guards are like, oh, hold, who goes there? Um, 
and he starts with one at a time and by the end he's launching full sticks of bamboo off of this cart like it's a gatling gun or something uh he is kicking poles at the guards to keep them out of his way and at distance using the cart as a weapon they're spinning around the set in the choreography it's incredible (laughs) he's impaling people with the bamboo again it it starts to get a little gory Mm because you you got that um cheng che like feeling in the beginning it's starting to come through on this one yeah but it's 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 brutal like now you've got the brutality and it doesn't stop from here on out there's actually going to be a scene here that's just going to ramp up (laughs) yeah every time i see it i get this audible like oh my god that was amazing but this is we're going to talk about we're going to talk about the same thing i know we're going to talk about the same thing we're all three of us i think we might all have the same idea (laughs) oh my god that was amazing um I felt really bad for whatever whoever the PA on set was that had to keep track of all the sticks of bamboo that shattered at some point during the scene or <laughs> refilled the cart between takes. Is that had they had to have had just like the mother load of about equally sized bamboo sticks for yes. this I, doing more than one take, just like constantly refilling this thing. <laughs> well, and I mean the way they do it too, you you have to know somebody somebody was getting cut hurt like. As much as they're doing the squibs and stuff like that, mm-hmm. I have to imagine there's some real blood in there oh, too yeah. because these people were taking a pounding. Some serious splinters after the stay yes. on set. Absolutely. Um, one of the bamboo pieces that he breaks does contain the pole of the original spear he had. It, it's the same label and it's a little red tip on it still, but no spear head because he has learned the way of the pole master and that is his weapon of choice now in his new monk life. Um, Entering the inn, the fifth son sees a stack of coffins in the center of the room, a little like coffin pyramid, which is coffin so Coffin pyramid. Good. Amazing. Uh, and jumping up Why top, is it there? We don't know, but it just drama. looks amazing. Uh, this is the point where I was like, I really appreciate how dedicated to like the over-the-top drama of the scheme Panme is because, you know, terrible guy. Uh, really incredible that he was so thoughtful as to create this horrifying set piece for us to have this final encounter in uh the is very into the visuals of yeah. of everything yeah. no one can say he why, isn't dramatic why, yeah <laughs> why hasn't that background been used in a mortal Kombat game is my uh, ooh, like I, it needs to so bad Ooh, yeah, <laughs> yeah well, the, the new one's coming out the, the new one's coming yeah. out soon so may, you don't know that for sure maybe could be copyright um, llc not a bomb <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> Uh, Padme's like right hand man pops up on top of the coffins wielding the golden sword and fifth brother's like where is my sister and Padme's man says that he's standing on her she's in her coffin <gasps> horrific um, Padme then appears in the balcony overlooking them and sort of like old evil man ha 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 looking down on you at them uh, and the fifth brother reminds him that it's he who he has dues to pay with and the fight begins in earnest again Dudes popping out of coffins left, right, and center. Poles are flying everywhere. It's chaos. It's incredible. It is I beautiful mean, chaos, man. Yes, mm-hmm. and they really turned this up to 11. Like, mm-hmm. they turn it up to 11 right right now, and it, it goes for a good solid six or seven minutes where it's just yeah 11 the whole time. And this is not one of those Shaw brothers. You have eight guys in a circle waiting their turn to go yeah. after the guy in the center. I, you cannot underestimate how complex the choreography is in this scene because you could have 20 or 30 people in that room and they're all going after him and he's taking them all out. 
And there are very few cuts in this sequence too. So I don't know how many like takes it took for them to put this together and even go through it, but it is blissful carnage. Mm -hmm. Um, It's just amazing how they put it all together. And it looks again, kinetic, raw, but there's this grace to it that um, you just, you don't see in today's action films. No, they make a really great use of the like stacked coffins in the center too, as yes. not only are guys leaping out of them to just add this like basically fourth direction that someone could be attacking from at any given moment, but also, you know, you're moving up and down the coffins as he runs. And again, that, that nice middle ground of wire work where it's just sort of accentuating the action, not like over the top floatiness, uh, just incredible choice to do that to play off of the one coffin in the center of the room earlier a nice little setup to completely unexpected payoff uh i loved it i loved everything about it <laughs> yeah he's he's taking guys out um with the lids of the coffin that are trying to come out mm-hmm. um you get now this is where i was talking about earlier you really get these guys being yanked back like 10 feet because they're getting hit in their stomach with a pole and and he just sends them flying. Mm-hmm. And when you look at this, you go, well, <laughs> I feel bad, not because they got hit with the pole, but the seven guys like yanking that guy across the room because that probably hurt just as much. But yeah. it's, it looks so cool when they do it. Uh, and of course, leaping from one of the coffins uh, after a couple other guys have had their turn is the eighth sister who is in fact still alive, but very, very injured and tied up. Uh, the fifth brother immediately changes focus a little bit to go after her and help her. And though she's very injured, she's like, leave me, you know, don't get caught here. Um, but he, of course, refuses and instead fights with her, like on his back at certain points, Kaiser rolling her back. around. It's <laughs> so awesome. Just again, another great dimension to add to the choreography of like, now not only does he have to be a good fighter, but also he has to keep his sister from getting injured more. Um, they're eventually surrounded and one by one, his limbs are captured with the bendy straws as he takes hits to protect his sister. And just as he's hit with the golden sword, uh, other monks from the monastery show up with one of the wolf puppets coming in to join the fight. I it's love that. It's so name. awesome. At this point, you're like, you, it cannot get any cooler. And then this happens. And you're like, well, that was at 11. So now it's at a 15. Yeah, it breaks the scale. Uh, the monks break out their, let's take out their teeth technique. And Jesus, for the so next like five minutes, it's just on people. people getting their teeth stuck to poles and bloody mouths everywhere. Sets of teeth all going flying it's it's over the top and it's the perfect payoff for well these monks are really good at one thing and damn if they're not going to do that thing while taking a little bit of influence from fifth son's teachings and they're they don't even do it just with their poles that one guy takes the the one dude's teeth out with his head <laughs> oh, that one <laughs> he's got brutal. the teeth yeah, he's got the teeth stuck in his head and they're both like in pain well and then they're using the wolf too to like chop down on people's arms that's oh yes the wolf puppets really get they really get their money's worth on those wolf uh models. <laughs> I, I think you're I think you're right. I want to build one now. Yeah. Um, I just think a little one on my desk would be great, or like maybe just yeah. a full sized one hanging out somewhere. I just think it could be a nice accent piece for any home. <laughs> I think so. It's a conversation starter for sure. Uh-huh. And then you could get but people yeah, to I'm... watch the eighth diagram pole fighter with you because you yeah. could be like, Oh, you know where this is from. We should we should spend an hour and a half <laughs> you gotta watch this. <laughs> and we haven't even talked about the best part yet. Oh, yeah. <laughs> this is where it's at. Yep. Yeah. The brother and sister rejoin the fight. Fifth brother is amazed that the abbot is helping, and he's like, oh, no, no, no. We're just driving away wolves. Go do your revenge thing over there. Um, 
fifth brother and eighth sister face off with Panmei and his second in command, who are briefly arguing over who gets to use the golden sword. And in their spat, uh, the fifth brother is the one who comes away with the young weapon, giving it to his sister, uh, who uses it to kill the second in command, um, who Panmei tries to run away. Second in command, like, grabs him and is like, no, 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 you don't get to flee from this. Uh, he's disrobed and thrown headfirst into one of the coffins. Oh, that had to hurt. And that's not the coolest. That's not uh, the coolest so part. So before that mm-hmm. is, um, I don't want to try. So I think there's like three, there's three tough guys. Yeah. So the first guy who gets it ends up getting a, um, I think it's a bamboo piece or, or a staff. Yes. Just shoved into his stomach. And he's starting to kind of faint backwards. Mm-hmm. There's another guy behind him that's going to run up. So Gordon Liu kicks the staff through, through that him. guy and impales the guy behind him. It's so and good. I've watched that like scene 10, 15 times this week because it is amazing how they choreograph it and then where the cut happens, and then that guy goes flying and is pinned up against the wall. Yeah, you so, gotta stand yeah. up. Like, you have to stand up and applaud at that point in time because that's one of the coolest things I've seen in a movie ever. Yes, it's brilliant. Then you get the dude thrown through the, through coffin, the coffin, which you're you're just like, wow, that's just perfection. In an incredibly comedic moment, the abbot says a little like prayer to Buddha too after it happens, which I'm like, great. It's it's over the top action. It's brutal, and also it's a little funny sometimes. We can still laugh at ourselves. I love this. <laughs> Yes, so good. But yeah, this this feels like a fight sequence where you could watch it ten times and get catch something different every time. There's just so mm-hmm. much happening, like you said. Everyone in the background is also participating in this fight. They're not just dancing around in the circle. Uh, there's so much to see. And the big moments are given the space to be big. They're getting splintered and thrown into a wall. They're having your head thrown through a coffin. It's appropriately large for the villain's final moments. Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, just as you're watching Gordon Liu doing something um, in the background, you can see uh, Kara doing her thing. Mm-hmm. And and that's why it almost requires repeat viewing, because if you're watching 25% of the screen <laughs> and then the next time you go watch it and go watch another 25%, you're going to get something totally, like you said, totally new out of it. Um, and it, it, it just... Again, I sound, I sound like a broken record. It is one of the best choreographed sequences to come out of the 80s. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Um, but throwing Panmei through a coffin, uh, they have ended their quest for revenge. The fifth brother gives his sister the jade and tells her to take the body back to court as a witness, as evidence. Um, and he walks off despite her calling to him. He declares that he has no home now and walks towards a mountain of some kind, a hill with some stones, very kind of soft landscape as she watches him go. We get one little flashback to the lineup of all the brothers panning across from the beginning of the original battle with that red background um, before we end the film on fifth brother walking up a hill on his lonesome as the credits roll. Very subtle, subdued, after absolutely insane action. After carnage, (laughs) yes. Yes. Yeah. Amazing. An, an end perfect film. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah. I like that we don't need to see the full like fallout. You know, we understand like Panmei's gotten his, 
young family's gonna be fine we don't need to go back to court and do the whole trial of it all we don't need to hash out all of the politics we've seen what we need to see of this story yeah it's um it it truly is one of the best shaw brothers i mean i know a lot of people when you talk gordon lou and everything else automatically go to the 36 chamber Mm -hmm. i'm not taking anything away from anybody else's (laughs) piece of the filmography but i think the reason why i like this one so much is it has a little bit of everything it's got the shallon training um, the fight sequences are amazing. They're very unique. And I think we said this at kind of at the beginning too, for a movie called the eight diagram pole fighter, it's all pole fighting. Yeah. Um, and you don't see that, um, sort of commitment to that kind of style of fighting enough in my opinion. It's just, it's really fantastic. And I, I think it's, it's a really unique film. Um, given, given all, all the troubles that happened behind the scenes, it is amazing that they pulled it off to make that sort of perfect, um, face kicking movie. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I was pleasantly surprised at how successfully, you know, with a rewrite halfway through filming, this is incredibly coherent. Um, we're kind of entering the final thoughts section of this podcast, which is a very loose section, as is the rest of the show. But I do <laughs> <laughs> just to kind of get your sort of closing thoughts on the film. I think we're all in agreement that the audience should watch this movie. But maybe if there's a particular situation, it might be appropriate to watch it in. Um Personally, I love this one. Definitely uh, definitely go check it out in any situation, especially if you're a martial arts fan. Like you've said, and like we've said throughout, very rarely do you get a movie that so thoroughly commits to a very particular weapon or style. And this one, very true to its title, you will see some very unique pole fighting choreography uh, that makes it stand out from a lot of other equally successful or equally well-loved martial arts flicks. Yeah, I, I don't know. I know Brad owns it, um, but Arrow had recently put out a Blu-ray copy. Um, and and I, don't, I don't know if you've picked it up yet either. It's definitely going I, on the shopping list now. <laughs> okay, yeah, you just buy it. Yeah. Like after we get done with this, go buy it. Um, the transfer on this thing is, it, it's just gorgeous. Mm. It, it They really did an amazing job cleaning it up. Um, there's amazing commentary on it. If, if you want to go through the history of this uh, family, um, I want to say it's, uh, well, I'll get it right here. Um, they have Jonathan Clements does this amazing commentary to it. And it is like going to school, but it, it's a good school, right? Uh, but you get all the interviews and everything else. Um, it, it's, to me, it is the perfect time to be a martial arts fan. Between yep. Arrow, Shout Factory, all the sets that they're doing. Mm-hmm. 88 um, films. Yeah, I mean, the amount of stuff that's coming out on Blu-ray. And, um, I mean, I just picked up the the Stephen Chow Fight Back to School trilogy mm-hmm. from 88 Films. And they're, they look gorgeous. But, I, I don't know, this the Shaw Brothers stuff that they're doing and the remastering, it, it's fantastic. I don't know. I know you watched this, Brad. I don't know what your thoughts are on it. No, I agree. I agree. Um, I was thinking like if you want films that like commit to their title, I think like you start with like Master of the Fly Guillotine, (laughs) then go to this and then go to Drunken Master 2. Like you're getting like these commitment to what the titles are. Yeah, That's like a perfect trilogy of films if you really want (laughs) to get a deep dive into into some serious like top tier Kung Fu films. Yes. Absolutely. Uh, and you guys have mentioned that you've seen this multiple times. Like, what is it about this movie that 
brings you coming back each time? Is there anything that you're just like, I, I need eight diagram pole fighter to scratch this particular itch? I mean, I think it, I think it really hits above its weight. If you ask me, like we're talked about the cinematography is really, really good. Um, but it ramps up to the conclusion that you want. Um, mm-hmm. I think the conclusion is actually better than anything I could have ever thought of. <laughs> um, but along the way, like you're getting great fight scenes every five to 10 minutes. Um, you're getting great characters. Um, you know, maybe you could argue that the villains are a little bit one dimensional, but that's okay. Cause you know, you're, you're with um, fifth brother for so long and, and that's fine. But I, you know, I just think, I think that end we've talked about that in 40 minutes is just worth it's, it's just, it's so good. And so it takes you on a journey that it, it, it's, it's almost unmatched really. Yeah. I, I really enjoy the Lockhart long films. Um, Brad kind of hinted at it. I think the reason why I go to this one is it, it feels like a greatest hits Shaw brothers compilation because Mm -hmm. it has a little bit of everything that came before it. But the thing that Lockhart Long's really good at doing is the action is good throughout the entire film. But each sequence, like when you get into 15 minutes to the 20 minute mark, to the 40 minute mark, to the last 30 minutes, it keeps getting bigger, more interesting. Um, there's more at stake. And um, he's he's really good at doing that. Like a film that I don't think gets talked about enough is 1988's Tiger on Beat. Mm. So it's Conan Lee, Chow and Fat. But... The action sequences are fantastic. And again, it builds up to a freaking chainsaw (laughs) martial arts choreography at the end. And you're like, well, that's just the most ridiculous, coolest thing I've ever seen in my entire life. That's what Lark Hardlong does. I mean, he is going to just go, oh, do you like that action sequence? So let me give you this one. You're like, well, that was really cool. I'd like some more of that. And you're like, really? I'm going to put, you know, whipped cream and a cherry on top of this next one. You're like, well, that's the best thing I've ever seen. Then you get to the last 10, 15 minutes of the film and you're like, well, holy cow, progressively... He knows how to just get you hooked and going and going. And really, every time I watch this film, I'm exhausted a little bit afterwards because I, I just feel like I'm I'm in the film taking mm-hmm. those hits and everything else. Um, and I, I really think it's one of my favorite Shaw Brother films. Uh, and that catalog's, man, it's deep. It's- <laughs> there, there are so many classics in that thing. But this one I, I love going back to. And I, I, I remember watching this on VHS dubbed pan and scan and believe it or not it still translated pretty well even with sort of the crop picture but that's why i got so excited when they started um dynasty or was dragon dynasty released it on dvd and that was a great print arrow just knocked it out of the ballpark so i'm i'm loving that this thing got the preservation and the attention it deserved yeah it's great to seeing something see something that should be so iconic get the space to keep its reputation going and get new people to watch it who are going to be able to see it in even better quality yeah, better quality. Yeah, my my favorite, my top five favorite Shaw Brothers films is like twenty five films long, so it's hard <laughs> yeah. to narrow it down. Yeah, uh, well, thank you guys so much for coming on the podcast to talk about this today. I'm sure we could talk about Hong Kong martial arts cinema for many more hours, so we'll just have to make a promise to bring you guys back on later. But uh, for oh, now, if, yes. <laughs> if people want to hear more from you about other topics and perhaps martial arts stuff, where can they find you guys? Yeah, we're over at uh, notabombpodcast.com. Um, we're on all of your uh, podcatchers. 
we have we're up to like 167 normal episodes um we've also done some spinoffs we did a retrospective on the anime cowboy bebop we're in the middle of a project called breaking brad which <laughs> troy gets the pick project. gets the pick uh the worst films he can think of to see what will break me um we have some one-offs uh interviews things like that but yeah i think we're almost up to like 200 episodes so check us out um yeah we're everywhere you can get your podcast we're there yeah, I'm, I, we specialize in movies that bombed at the. Oh box yeah, office, I guess obviously. I should. <laughs> we should uh, talk about yeah. our thesis. Give yeah, me the sorry. Yeah, it's it's it, you know if it bombed at the box office or critics didn't like it or the you know our favorites when both of those things occur, that's what we try to highlight. But again, we have um, we have little clauses like if there's a Don Lee film we want to talk about, we just talk about it because we can get around the rules and say, well, it bombed here because it was only released in 300 theaters <laughs> while it was the highest grossing movie in Korea. We're like, cool. Um, but yeah, to Brad's, to Brad's point, we, we try to champion and, and maybe give a second look at things that, um, you know, just it, they weren't successful. I think the last couple we've talked about have been stuff like Sorcerer, William Freakin's, mm-hmm. uh, film. Yeah. I think we're getting ready to do release kingdom of heaven, the, yeah. the Ridley the director's Scott director's cut. cut. And mm-hmm. we, we try to spend a little bit of time on what happened when the movie released? What was its reception? Why did yeah, it bomb? Yeah, like Sorcerer comes out three weeks after Star Wars New Hope, so it had no chance of yeah, you know, doing anything. Do. <laughs> yeah, so it's a little bit of that, but um, you know, we try to have fun with it. And and we have you coming on uh, for a Batman movie, which Ooh. I'm I'm really excited about. And uh, also in November, I think we're going to do some film noir, like modern film noirs that bombed. And, and I think you'll be on for that one, too. So we're excited to have you over. I'm excited to be on. You guys should definitely go give the show a listen. It's a it, absolutely delightful time. I love looking into I, famously one of my favorite movies is Speed Racer, which inf- which has been oh. something of a, a flop of history. And uh, I love that you guys are giving these movies another look and really getting into the meat of them. Uh, so definitely go check out Not A Bomb podcast if you enjoyed the show. Uh, and thank you guys so much for joining me. Thank you guys for listening. I'm off to join a monastery, shave my head, and avenge my family's honor. Catch you guys on the next episode. <laughs>Thanks so much for listening to this week's episode of Movie Struck. We'll be back on September 25th with another thrilling installment. But if you have any questions, comments, or concerns for the podcast before then, feel free to email us at moviestruckpod at gmail.com. If you enjoyed the pod, please uh, rate us and leave a review on your preferred podcast platform. And if you really enjoyed the show, consider becoming a patron for bonus monthly film reviews selected by said patrons, as well as other cool stuff. And if you're interested in talking to other movie lovers like you or just fans of the pod, head over to the Movie Struck Discord for some cool discussions. I've shared my uh, TMNT love over there, and there's a lot of really great people on this server. So definitely check out all of that linked in the show notes below. I'd like to give a special shout out to the patrons who joined us last month in August. So thank you to Ethan Stein and Avocado Zero Eye Bird. You guys and everyone else over on Patreon are the reason that the lights are on and the cat who is currently trying to bite my feet is fed. So thank you so much for your support of the show and we'll catch you next episode.